Well, my name is Johnny Artavanis. As Brian said, I'm so thankful to be a member of this church. I'm thankful for Brian Biedebach. He is the man. Amen? Amen. Well, I do work at the Master's University, and then uh, I have a wife, just one. Her name is Katie. Uh, We met at Hume Lake a few years back, and we've been married now for three years this week, and we have one daughter named Lily Jean. Uh, You can't miss her if you see a baby that looks like she's never missed a meal and is packing on the pounds. That is my daughter, Lily. She's 10 months old. Um, I'm thankful for a number of the people. I've never been in Steadfast before, but I'm thankful for a number of the people that are here that I see. Um, Rick and Carrie Dempsey, who are family to me. Tim and Wendy Kane, who kind of raised me. Uh, I moved in with Tim and Wendy when my parents moved from this area up to Kingsburg, California. I think I saw you on a walk after my dad and mom moved up to Central California, and I didn't know you too well, and I remember you, remember, I remember you asking me where I was going to live when they moved, and I said, I have no idea, and then I lived with them uh, for the next two years, I think starting a few weeks later. So I'm thankful for their kindness, and I'm thankful for the opportunity to open up God's Word with you this morning. Can I pray for us, and then we'll jump in? God, we are so grateful for the privilege of being together. We're thankful for the opportunity to open up the living and active Word of God. And Lord, we pray this morning not as just a routine or a tradition of transition between worship and the preaching of your Word. We pray because we acknowledged what the psalmist says. God, we need you to open our eyes so that we may behold the wonderful things within your Word. So Lord, I pray that for my own heart, and I pray that for all of our hearts here, God, that you would open our eyes, Lord, that we would see how wonderful your truth is and how relevant it is for our lives. Would you give us an exalted view of the character of God this morning, and would you teach us how to live in light of who you are? We love you, Lord, and we're so grateful that you love us. We pray this in your name, and all God's people said, Amen. Well, one of the main thrusts of wisdom literature within the scripture is to get us to think, uh, to consider who God is, and then to consider who we are in light of the character of God. And one of the predominant themes that wisdom literature compels us to contemplate is the brevity of our own lives. In Job, Job says, my days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle. I don't weave, but I get the picture. In Ecclesiastes, we see that life is like a vapor, like a puff of cold air on a cold Chicago morning. I grew up my childhood in Chicago, and I remember I used to walk outside and just take a breath, and you would see it in the air, and then it would quickly evaporate. And Solomon in Ecclesiastes says, your life is like that puff of cold air. Proverbs says, you don't even know what your life will look like tomorrow. Life is a vapor. It's brief. It's unpredictable. I listen to sports radio in the morning as I head to the gym. I often see the cross-country guys there, and they're working out after they've done a routine 10-mile jog, uh, which I don't understand. But I listen to sports radio as I head to the gym, and I was recently listening to Colin Cowherd. If you're not a sports fan, I forgive you, but I want you to listen to what he said. Colin was commentating on the death of Dwayne Haskins. He was a standout quarterback at Ohio State University, and he was now looking to continue his career on the Pittsburgh Steelers. But Dwayne Haskins had died the day before at the age of 24. And the question is, how did Dwayne Haskins die? Well, Dwayne died because he was hit by a dump truck walking outside of a restaurant and pronounced dead on the scene. They were commenting 
on the tragedy of a man who died so young. And the words that they used were especially interesting to me in light of my recent study. The commentator said, quote, it's such a tragedy he died. He had his whole life in front of him. This is a normal thing to say when people die young. What a tragedy. They had their entire life in front of them. But the scripture, scripture that's a hard word to say, um, but the scripture is going to teach us this morning and ask us probing questions. Don't you understand, young man, young woman, busy dad, middle-aged mom, you don't have your whole life in front of you. You're not even promised tomorrow. I remember a couple years ago, I was teaching at Hume Lake, and afterwards some kids came up to me and said, hey, Johnny, did you hear Kobe died? And I was just like, what? I mean, I love Kobe. It was such an interesting thing for me because I didn't know the guy personally, but I, I felt like I did. And it's just ironic, Kobe can beat the Celtics, but he can't anticipate or determine the day of his death. And this isn't my attempt at a pithy soundbite. It's the punch in the gut from reality that we need. You are mortal, and your days are numbered. As Christians, we are committed to living for the glory of God, but to be consumed about living for the glory of God means that we are mindful of the fragility and fleeting nature of life. Jonathan Edwards used to pray in this way that God would stamp eternity on his eyeballs. He wanted to live his life with an eternal perspective. He wanted to view every single person as if they had an eternal soul. He wanted to live each hour as if it was the last hour. He was an unusual man in this regard, and that's why God used him in an unusual way. Distracted disciples don't turn the world upside down. The question this morning is, how can we live our short life well? And to answer that question, we will look at the 90th Psalm. Although 90th in its placement, it is the first Psalm ever written and the only one written by Moses. I love the Psalms. We live in a world of posturing and pretend and facades and masks. But in the Psalms, there is the presence of total transparency before God and before others. There's no stoic denial of emotion within the Psalms. The Psalms tell us who God is, how to respond to misery, heartache, pain, and misery and sorrow, and how to respond to delayed answers to prayer, how to deal with our own sin or when we've been sinned against. They address many of the most probing questions in our mind. The Psalms become the articulation of Christian experience. And in Psalm 90, the title is given at the beginning, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. This is the proper title for the leader, lawgiver, and prophet of Israel. This man of God wrote this psalm during the wilderness wanderings of Israel as they traveled to the promised land of Canaan. If you remember, when Israel arrived at Kadesh Barnea after coming out of Egypt, the Lord commanded them to what? To take the land. But the people refused, and their lack of faith angered God, who sent them back in the wilderness for 40 years. And then for 40 years, Moses led the children of Israel in circles through the Negev until an entire generation died. And if you go to Israel, you'll understand that they were not leagues from the promised land. They were yards from the promised land. Moses, the pastor of two million people, did more funerals than anybody else in human history. If any generation wasted their time 
their talents or their opportunities. It was the people that Moses was responsible to lead. The wilderness became a graveyard, a wasteland of bones. And all of those funerals, all of those deaths served as a reminder of the transitory and fleeting nature of human life. You are going to die. James Montgomery Boyce says this about Psalm 90. He says, This psalm is probably the greatest passage in the Bible, contrasting the grandeur of God with man's frailty. Now, in order that the Lord would teach us to number our days, we're going to see in this psalm Moses break down four attributes of God that will compel you to live your short life well. Four attributes of God that will compel you to live your short life well. Let us first consider in verses 1 and 2 the eternality of God. Verse 1, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. In order for us to wisely steward our short life, we must consider its brevity against the backdrop of God's eternality. Moses says in verse one, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Moses is not just merely reciting elements of God's character. This is a prayer to God. Moses declares that as generations come and go, one thing remains the same. Lord, you have been our dwelling place forever. These people were nomads. They were pilgrims. They were for 400 years in bondage in Egypt. And then once they left Egypt, they were wandering around in the desert for 40 years. No one understood homelessness like the people of God. But here in verse one, Moses is struck by a precious and profound reality. No matter where their body has been, God has been the home for their soul. Spurgeon asks, have you ever known what it is to have God for your dwelling place and the sense of comfort? Well, if you, like the Israelites, feel like a tumbleweed bouncing around in the wilderness, God tells you, I am your home. If you are a believer, your dwelling place is not a place. He's a person. Your dwelling place is God himself, and the text says, in all generations. Moses reflects on past providences of God, but details for readers today through the living and active word. God's sheltering, his protection, and his provision for his people didn't begin with the exodus of Egypt, nor did it end there. He is our constant refuge. We live in an ever-changing, divided, and dying world. But Moses says, oh God, I'm so thankful one thing stays the same, that you are the home of my soul. Questions are asked in scripture as you read them. They're probing questions. Do you feel out of place? Do you feel nomadic? Well, then listen to the words of the well-known hymn. O God, our help in ages past, our hope in years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast, and our eternal, what? Home. Verse 2. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. I mentioned that for a number of years I lived at Hume Lake, and it's at this intersection right in the middle of Kings Canyon National Park and Sequoia National Park, and right there in the middle of those mountains, there's a lake. And I often go up to students, little kids that are there at the lake, and I say, hey, buddy, who made that lake? And they say, God. 
And they say, no, he didn't make that lake. That lake was not made by God. That lake was designed by John Eastwood and constructed by the Hume Bennett Lumber Company in 1908. And it was the first multiple arch concrete reinforced dam in the world, bud, not made by God. During lumber operations, the lake stored logs for an adjacent mill and supplied water for a flume that would transport this cut lumber down to Sanger, California. If you've ever been to Hume Lake, though, you know that it's still beautiful. But the mountains that surround that lake were not made by John Eastwood, the inventor of concrete-reinforced multiple arch dams. The mountains were made and begotten by God And they were there before my grandpa or my great-grandpa, before Washington or Whitfield or Alexander the Great or Aristotle. Those mountains have been there forever. And the mountains in scriptures are symbols of solidity and strength. And that's why the psalmist says in Psalm 121, I lift my eyes up to the mountains. From where does my help come from? Mountains draw our attention upwards. They draw our focus towards God. And the psalmist is reflecting here, before the mountains were brought forth or you ever made the world, you have always been God. These mountains, God, are ancient to me, but they are babes to you. Sometimes I used to go on walks and when I was at Hume, I used to travel much internationally and just see what different missionaries are doing all around the world. And I've been in some pretty remote places And I like to walk and just go, man, I wish I could have a movie about what's happened here. You know, if you could see if these trees could talk. The trees don't talk. And nor do the mountains. But the God who made them does. And he is the one who is going to teach us to number our days. I find it interesting that in the only psalm Moses writes, he considers the eternality of God as one of the chief foundations for us to live our lives on. And I think it's because years earlier, Moses stood before the presence of Yahweh at a burning bush. And before God commissions him on that great journey, he reminds him of something that separates Yahweh from man. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God of the past. I am the God of the present. I am the God of the future. Moses, I am eternal And as Moses leaves that burning bush for a daunting task, Yahweh wants Moses to know, listen here, Moses, Pharaoh has a beginning and he will have an end, but only I am from everlasting to everlasting. Sometimes the eternality of God just kind of trips off our tongue. We sing songs like, you are the everlasting God. But we live in a shaking and crumbling world. And God says, put the Pharaoh, Moses, put that Pharaoh against the backdrop of my eternality and the giant in your life will immediately shrink and you'll be able to rest in my eternal power and love. So first we are to consider the eternality of God and then in verses three through seven, we are to consider the sovereignty of God. Moses says in verse three, you turn man back into dust and say, return, O children of men. Humanity lives under a sovereign decree of death. We all die. We are all dying. We are all conceived in sin. And because we are conceived in sin, it says in Psalm 51, we all have a date with death. Hebrews 9.22 says, it is appointed for man to die once. And after that comes the judgment. 
we return to the dust. I remember being at a gravesite when I was a boy and I heard the familiar line for the first time, ashes to ashes, dust to what? Dust. We all return to the dust, but the question is why? Why? Well, verse three tells us, you turn man back into dust and say, return, O children of men. Moses says that the Lord is the one who returns us to the dust. Sometimes when people die young, we say they die prematurely. But overall, it was God himself that turns people back into the dust. And you and I won't exceed the number allotted to us by a single moment. That's what Psalm 139 says, is it not? That all of our days were written in his book before one of them came to be. This is how priceless time is. It has been allotted by God And God is the one who turns us back to where we came from. We came from the dust and we will return there. Verse four, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch in the night. God superintends what happens in time, but he himself dwells outside of it. And he is the sovereign ruler over it. Moses says a thousand years in your sight are like a blip on the radar to an eternal God. Here are the empires of the last 1,000 years. I want you to bear with me for a second because I want you to consider what Moses is saying. Here are some of them. The Holy Roman Empire, not to be confused with the Roman Empire, the Western Chalukya Empire of South India, the Western Qi Dynasty in China, the Second Bulgarian Empire that lasted 237 years, the Mongol Empire, the Ottoman Empire that lasted for 623 years until 1922, the Aztec Empire, the British Empire, the German Empire, the American Empire. And God surveys the scope of empires and says, yesterday, yesterday, the glory and obliteration of empires are forgotten. New inventions are ancient history. You yourself will likely elude the pens of historians. Hitchens says that the ambition to locate oneself within history is as absurd as trying to locate oneself within astronomy. He's an atheist and he gets it. You will be forgotten, but God sees the scope of eternity and he rules over it because he is sovereign. Even beyond a thousand years, the most lengthened stretches of time are but a wink to God. Verse five. You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep in the morning. They are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening it fades and withers away. Moses will now give three consecutive metaphors for death. He says, first, they are like, death is like a flood. It's like a flood that sweeps everything away. In the Middle East, it's really hot. So what happens when it rains is that on those dry beds, there creates a massive wall of water because the soil is too hard for the water to penetrate. And so what happens is there's this massive wall of water that sweeps away everything that comes before it. And Moses says, that's what death is like. It comes when we least expect. And it's like a wall of water that sweeps away the generations of men. No one that's standing in death's path can survive. But not only is it like a wall of water, he says, they fall asleep. You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In other translations, it says that death is like a dream. It's so quick. You wake up and think, wait, what what did I dream last night? but you can't remember the dream because the dream was too brief. And Moses says in that same way, 
Your life is like a dream. But many people today are asleep to life's brevity. Moses then says that we are like grass. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts new. Toward evening it fades and withers away. We are not cedars of Lebanon. We are not oak trees. One of the most common metaphors in Scripture to describe your life is a blade of grass. Grass fades and withers, but sometimes grass is cut short. We expect to pace out the end of our lives by an estimation or awareness of our fading and withering, and we never think the life that will be cut short is our own. Grass fades and withers, and sometimes it is cut short. Spurgeon says this, here is the history of the grass. It is sown, grown, blown, mown, gone. And the history of man is not much more. Isaiah 46 says, the pro- uh, all flesh is grass and all of its beauty is like the flowers of the field. Grass withers, flowers fail. God is forever. Dreams don't last forever and neither will your life. Don't you see how important it is to live your life for the glory of God? Moses will then lead us to a third attribute of God in verses 7 through 12. First, we considered his eternality. Second, his sovereignty. Now we will consider the justice of God in verses 7 through 11. He says, For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we have been dismayed. This third section of the psalm reveals to us that death is sure because we are sinners. The holy justice of God demands that sin be punished. We are under a curse. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is what? Death. When we receive the news of someone's death, we often ask the question, how did so-and-so die? What happened? What happened? When did they die? How did they die? The circumstances may differ, but the reason is always the same. You and I die because we are sinners. Sin kills us. At the bottom, the foundation of life's brevity, fragility, and the tragedy of life is sin. Think about the context. Moses is walking through the wilderness and he sees all these bones, all of these, just think about in tombstones, if you will. And he's looking around and he's considering, why, why, why? An entire generation of men dead. It's because of sin. Why do we die? Why do we have a relatively small number of days on earth? It's because we're sinners and because sin is serious. And the question for us is if sin is so serious, why do we treat it so casually in our own life? One pastor notes, we get angry about the wrong things for the wrong reasons and express it in the wrong way. But God's anger towards sin is a holy anger for we have been consumed by your anger and by your wrath we have been dismayed. God's wrath is his divine response to man's unrighteousness. Verse eight, you have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. There are no secret sins to God. You may be able to hide your sin from people, but you cannot hide your sin from an omniscient God. With God, the camera is always rolling. The microphone is always on. 
I remember when I was a kid, one of my favorite movies was Mighty Joe Young. Remember that movie? The Massive Gorilla. There's this part where the trainer is interacting with Mighty Joe, the biggest gorilla on earth. And they love this one scene or this one part in Mighty Joe's life where he's playing hide and seek. And he goes and hides behind a blade of grass. And they're going, where are you, Joe? Where are you, Joe? Where are you, Joe? And it's stupid, right? So it's a massive gorilla, and it's right in front of them. This idea of you trying to hide your sin from God is that very same idea. Hebrews 4.13 says that all of our life is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him who sees everything and to whom we will give an account. You may delete your internet search history, but God searches and knows your heart. And everything is uncovered and laid bare before him. And not just our actions, Ezekiel 11.5, for I know the things that come into your mind, saith the Lord, every single one of them. And all of those secret sins, all of those secret thoughts are brought in the presence of the God who rules and reigns and superintends all things. Verse nine says, for all of our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our days like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? He's saying, who considers how angry you are towards sin? We kind of, I, I, you know, I even struggled with what to teach on today. Because I was actually looking at some psalms recently. We were on our student, life, our student life retreat with the master's students, RAs, Chapel Bank, Campus Life, and we were looking at psalms as well. And I think in our own life, especially in a truth-filled environment, there's a danger of spectrum shifting. Where if the world and the church culture says so much about the love of God, we can often swing to the other side of the pendulum and stress the holiness of God at the expense of his love. If the world's stressing the grace of God, we might stress the law of God and the need for obedience. And here, Moses is considering the reality that some of us, it's possible to consider his love and his grace and lose sight of how much God hates and is grieved over our sin. He says, who actually considers how much you hate sin, God? Who contemplates the fury in your heart towards wickedness? No one in this room fears God too much. Not a single person. Want to know how much God hates sin? Well, then look at God's son hanging naked on a cross, murdered by the people he came to save. God punishes sin because he is just. And everyone you know will have their sin paid for by God's son or punished by God forever in hell. We have an eternal God, and he reserves an eternal home for his children and an eternal hell for those who reject him. Hell is never described as a temporary place. Whitfield and others used to speak with tears in their eyes over the thought of the thousands who listened to them preach would spend eternity in hell. And at the conclusion of a million years in torment, they will be no sooner, no closer to the end of that torment than when they first arrived. They will never ever be delivered from that place. Send Lazarus to dip some water on my tongue. No. 
Hell is an eternal place. What's funny is if I got up here and said there's no such thing as a literal hell, I would be stoned. You know, in this environment, we could preach a six-part sermon series on the literal nature of hell. But do you live like your neighbors are going there? Because that's what the psalmist is going to get at in the next verse. He's going to reach a high note in the psalm. If God, you are eternal, if you are sovereign, if sin is serious, how are we to live? God, if, if you know me, God, and you're an eternal God, and you're a sovereign God, my days are short. Verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Calvin says, although we know we are going to die, we are so tied to the transient that we imagine we are going to live forever. But to enroll in God's school of wisdom, to have your hearts presented to him as a wise heart, you need to ask God, to beg God, to pray to God, teach me to number my days, O Lord. And this is not just about marking days off the calendar. It is about living our life under the banner of God's omniscience, his eternality, his holiness, his justice, and as we will look at in a moment, his love. It is to measure today in light of eternity. You are an absolute fool, the Bible says, if you live your life like it'll never end. You cannot present your heart before the Lord as a heart of wisdom if you do not properly value the scarcity of time. A boxing legend won the Olympic gold in 1968 and went on to win the heavyweight championship in 1973. However, this athlete filed for bankruptcy in 1983. He had lost everything. No, this is not Rocky V. This is a real story. But this boxer turned a corner in his late 40s and made it all back and then some, not by boxing, but by marketing portable electronic grills called George Foreman's. He lost it all and now... George Foreman is worth roughly half a billion dollars because he got the licensing rights to Panini Makers. <laughs> Fortunes are lost, and they can be rebuilt. But no one here can have back yesterday. Once it is gone, it is gone forever. Don't waste your life, the psalmist is saying. Don't waste your neighbor's. Don't waste the parents on your children's sports teams. Once those opportunities are gone, they are gone forever. We consider the finitude of our retirement accounts, of our inventory, of our cattle, of our sheep. We know the number, but have you considered the fleeting number of your days? If I live to be 75, I have 16,400 days left. Sounds like a lot, but tomorrow's not promised to me. And as Moses led the funeral procession through the wilderness, he taught them to sing truths about their circumstances. God is eternal. God is sovereign. Life is short. Death is sure. Judgment is coming. Oh, so God, please teach me to number my days. Yet the song is not merely full of pessimism. It is filled with hope. Life, death, and judgment are in God's hands. But thankfully, so thankfully, so is his grace. 
And in the final verses, 13 through 17, we will consider the fourth and final attribute of God, which is the grace of God. Moses says, Do return, O Lord, how long will it be? And be sorry for your servants. O satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all of our days. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us and the years we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to your children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. Moses, the psalmist, gives us hope. Time demonstrates God's justice, but it also demonstrates God's kindness and love. And as Moses reflects on time, he knows it would be unbalanced to merely reflect on the difficulties of life's journey and on the consequences of sin. So he knows that a realistic reflection of who God is propels us to consider one of the marvels of God's character, and that is his grace and his love. Verse 14 says, Oh, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all of our days. This is God's has said love, his loyal, unbreakable love to undeserving man. And God's love here is not merely, please listen here, it's not merely a truth we affirm. It is a reality to be experienced. Moses says, oh God, satisfy me in the morning with your love. Satisfy the deepest cravings of my soul. The psalmist in Psalm 34 doesn't say believe and affirm that God is good. He says taste and what? See, because the character of God is not something we check off on a box. It's something that thrills our hearts. And Moses knows that if we are not satisfied by the love of God, we will seek to be satisfied by something else. Only the unsatisfied person prays to be satisfied. Harry Walls, who I spend a lot of my life with, says a line a lot. He says, hungry people eat. You were made to be satisfied. And there's a reason the psalmist says, satisfy my heart. When does he say to do it? In the morning. I understand that some of you may do your devos at night. I'm not going to make a rant on that. But there's a reason that he says in the morning. It's because if your heart is not satisfied by the love of God, first and foremost, it'll seek to be satisfied somewhere else. And I think it's Hudson Taylor who used to say, you don't tune your instruments after a concert. Begin your day with God to seek satisfaction in a way that only he can bring. The psalm asks us a question, do you want satisfaction Do you want to be filled in a way that no earthly possession or person can offer? And then ask God to satisfy you with his love. Maybe the reason why many people today tend towards ingratitude is because they're not satisfied with the bread that never perishes and with the love that always fills. I find it interesting that in the context of a psalm that's so much about how we steward our life, the first thing Moses is going to teach us is not to pull out a to-do list. He's going to tell us to pull out our Bibles and consider and dwell deeply upon the love of God. The question is why. Well, I, th- I, think it's, I think it's simple. It's because when we dwell deeply at the fountain of the love of God, it fuels everything else. What does Paul say in 2 Corinthians? He says, it is the love of Christ that what? compels me. 
for a moment, I would like to draw our attention to, to the reality that many professing Christians rarely exhibit any satisfaction in the reality of God's love. There are a lot of students today growing up hearing the song, Amazing Love, How Can It Be That Thou My God Shouldst Die For Me, that have never seen anyone truly experience or demonstrate that they've been thrilled by it. At Hume, I was around, uh, I don't know, 40,000 high school students a year uh, just teaching throughout. I ran 26 weeks of camp. Each of those camps has 1,000 students, and I traveled almost every week. I wasn't running camp. And one of the questions I got from churches often was, why do so many students leave the church at 18? I think there's a number of different reasons. But can I postulate? I think it's because they've grown up singing Amazing Grace, but have never seen anybody grab them by the collars and say, oh, this satisfies me. This is wonderful to me. Oh, oh, Johnny, this is amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? If you're a parent in this room, it's so important that your children see you thrilled by what you proclaim. This wondrous love is not just a doctrine to affirm. It's a reality to be experienced within our heart. And once it is experienced, and only then will our hearts be satisfied. And then once we've tasted that love, what's the ensuing effect? Look at the end in verse 14. It says that we may sing for joy and be glad all of our days. In a world of confusion and uncertainty, the Christian has a clear and certain reason to rejoice. We are Well, not just on a macro level, you are deeply loved by God. Our hearts are wired in a way to resist this idea of God's love. I remember reading Augustine when I was in college, and he has that line that he cares and he loves us as if there were only one of us. I mean, that God loves you. His love is divided in a pie between all of his children. He gives all of his love to all of his children individually. And I remember walking down the stairs and saying, Dad, I did not know that Augustine was a seeker-sensitive preacher. But as we look to God's word, we see that the wondrous idea of God's love is not a strategy of pragmatists, but the declaration of God himself. I have loved you, says the Lord, Isaiah Jeremiah, I have loved you with an everlasting love, says the Lord, which means that just like our God who had no commencement in time, neither did his love for you. And if his love for you never had any commencement in time, then you can be sure that had nothing to do with your human performance. And if it had nothing to do with your human performance, then there was nothing ever you could do to lose it because there was nothing you did to gain it. He loves us and this love satisfies your hungry heart. And now those who have tasted his love can always have the amount of necessary joy to face life's difficulties in verse 15. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us and the years which we have seen evil. Verse 16, let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. He's saying, let your work appear to your servants. I love this. He's considering who God is. He's considering the brevity of his life. And he concludes his psalm by saying, God, I don't want to sit on the bench I don't want to be a bench warmer in your kingdom work. I want to serve you. I want to get after it for the glory of God. 
One of the key components of being made in the image of God is that we are active. To make this personal, God has given you and I a work to do. And as long as you are alive and breathing, he has given you and commissioned you to fulfill that work. Verse 17 says, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. This psalm is taking us by the hand and leading us to an answer that helps us so that the stony, bony fingers of mortality no longer bring us to despair, but to joy and purpose. Moses says, confirm, establish the work of my hands. He's saying, God, put my hand to the plow and go before me. Put your hand to the plow with me. Only then will my life matter. Think in glory, we are going to be embarrassed by how much we tweeted and posted about what's happening to our world and how little we declared and preached that Jesus is the only light of the world. And Moses is considering the the surety of death and the inevitability of judgment. And he's saying, God, confirm for me the work of my hands. God has given us an allotted amount of time. And the way that we glorify God is by leveraging and maximizing that time while on earth. Jonathan Edwards was consumed with living for the glory of God. For one, two, three, four, I want to live for the glory of God. Then what does he say next? Five, six, seven, the resolutions all have to do with his time. Because he knew that he could not live for the glory of God if he wasted his time. C.T. Studd is known for the line, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will what? Last. That much is true. But the psalmist draws our attention to a certain reality that the endeavors that last, even the ones we do for Christ, are only confirmed and established when God is doing it with us and before us. He says, confirm for us the work of our hands. God, do it. I can't do this alone. Sometimes I think that when we read John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. What we really think is apart from God, we're not operating on all cylinders. Just not going as fast as you could. The word of God says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Almost two years ago, my friend I worked with at Masters, um, he was one of the only guys I knew when I got back to the school he called me on a Friday, said he wasn't feeling his best, asked if I could preach at his church on Sunday. He was a pastor in the San Fernando Valley. Um, he left me a voicemail and said, hey, Johnny, would you feel for, you know, pray, for, or pray for me? I'm not feeling good, and would you preach for me? And then he ended the voicemail by saying, preach hard. Um, that was Friday night, and on Sunday, I think around 11 a.m., um, Mark was with the Lord. I was just, it was the most shocking death of my life and just regards to like, I was just with him. The predetermined days of his life had ended. And the following Monday at his funeral, there was a video tribute to Mark and the song that played in the background was a familiar one. And it had these lyrics. I am a flower quickly fading here today and gone tomorrow, a wave tossed in the ocean, a vapor in the wind. That was true of Mark's life. That's true of your life. But Mark lived for that which lasts. Someone else understood the transitory nature of human life and went before us as an example of what it means to live pedal to the metal for the glory of God. Jesus himself said, I have come and I have a work to do while it is still day. Night is coming. He had an allotted mission and an allotted amount of time. Jesus understood that his life was on a divine schedule. 
and so is yours. How do we live in light of Psalm 90? How do we steward our short lives well? Well, if I could just point you to one idea and then we will have to conclude our time. He saved you for a reason and he's given you this life for a reason. It's in Peter. He says, he saved you so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his, what? Marvelous light. Did you know that there is a specific reason God saved you? If he wanted you to be with him, he would just take you now, if he wanted that now, but he's left you here for a reason. Discipleship definitely starts at home, but if it stays in the home, it's not real discipleship because God has given you a mission and numbering your days means that you live in light of that. It means you go, man, life is brief. God is eternal. He is just, but oh, he is so gracious. And it means numbering your days going, man, I have an allotted amount of time to do what God has set before me. And then Moses says, satisfy us in the morning, oh God, with your love. Because the thought is, if your heart is satisfied by something wonderfully true, can you bear to live your life and keep that from those who have not experienced it? Oh, if God's kindness is wonderful to you, will you, will you just hide that to yourself? Sometimes we think about our time, and I think as Christians, we can huddle together and talk about how dark the world is. Jesus says, if you want to number your days, it looks simple. You live in light of the reality that you've been given an assignment by a holy, eternal, sovereign, just, and gracious God. And would you pray with me that the Lord would teach us to number our days? Let's pray. God, we love you, and we're so thankful for your son, Jesus Christ. We're thankful for your word. Teach us, Lord, to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. God, I pray that you would give us a missional mind and seeks to reach the lost, that seeks to strive for holiness, God, because we are also called to be imitators of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, would you conform us into your image, and would you give us boldness to declare who you are to those who will one day experience your justice. And, Lord, would you please be in us and through us instruments of your grace and your love to those who need it. We love you, Lord, and we pray that you would satisfy us this morning with your love for us. Praise your name. Amen. Thank you, guys.